Hi, everyone. Today we are sharing with you a special bonus interview that we released on our Patreon earlier this month. As you hopefully know, we have a goal in March of having 200 more listeners join our Patreon. Our show is a small little show, and so each and every one of you makes a difference when you join our Patreon. $5 a month, $10 a month, we are making the show work with each dollar that you contribute. So we're really grateful to those of you who are joining. You are making this work possible. One of the things that your support allows us to do is time to research and interview incredible experts like today's guest, Jennifer Regan Lefebvre. You may remember Jennifer from last season on air in which we interviewed her about Madeira wine. She's a historian of modern Britain, Ireland, and British imperialism and the author of Imperial Wine, the British Empire and Making of Wine's New World. And this book was nominated for the Andre Simone Awards, and we are wishing Jennifer luck as you are listening to this. She should be at the event finding out whether or not her book won this amazing award. Her work combines political, economic, and cultural approaches and puts wine history in dialogue with colonial history. This is the kind of thing that you would be experiencing regularly if you joined our Patreon. We released it to our patrons a couple of weeks ago, but we wanted to give you a taste, pun intended, of the kinds of things that you would be enjoying if you were over on our Patreon. Here's my conversation with Professor Jennifer Regan Lefebvre. So Jennifer, you are, in general a historian, but you are in particular a historian of wine. I am. And one of the first mentions, one of the few mentions of wine happened in a recent chapter that we read. Darcy has come in. Lizzie is distraught because she's just gotten this letter from Jane about Lydia. And Darcy says, let me call your maid. Is there nothing you could take to give you a present relief? A glass of wine? Shall I get you one? You are very ill. And I'm wondering, let's say I am reading this book in 1815. Is there anything that I would know about this sentence that I, in Year of Our Lord 2023, would not necessarily pick up on? Sure. I think what you would know is that wine was considered medicinal. So by suggesting a glass of wine, he's not saying, how about we have a drink together? Rather, he's saying, you have suffered a severe shock. So how about a glass of wine, which was seen as as something that you took to steady your nerves and to make yourself feel better? You know, it's funny because there's a fair amount of eating and drinking that happens in all of Austen's books because a lot of the, the plot develops around people socializing together. So most of that drinking is actually cups of tea amongst women. And I thought it was kind of ironic because wine or a hard alcohol like a brandy used to be given to somebody who'd had a shock. But today, in 2023, any English person would offer you a cup of tea if you'd had a shock. But here it's a glass of wine. And there's this incredible literature from the early 19th century about types of wine and how to give them as medicine. Okay, so even families who didn't drink much wine and wine drinking is, is largely the preserve of the wealthier classes. Not entirely, but, but largely. Would have kept a bottle of something on hand for illnesses. And you would have given someone a small glass of wine if they were ill, if they had had a shock, if they seemed weak, if they seemed nervous. And when I say anyone, I also mean children. And there were specific doses for women of children of different types of wine. Are these fortified wines? Because wine 
over time becomes not good. So if you just like have a bottle of regular wine and you're like, don't worry, in three years we'll use it up, like cough syrup goes bad. So are these like the wines that we would know from today or are these more like port and sherry type wines? You are absolutely right. They are port and sherry type wines, so fortified wines. These are wines that have been made with the addition of extra alcohol. So they probably would have been in the range of 16 to 22% alcohol by volume. And you would have had a small glass, you know, maybe two or three ounces. The reason why fortified wines were really popular in Britain, and they weren't just treated as after-dinner drinks, they weren't just dessert wines, is because virtually all of the wine in Britain is imported from a great distance. And fortified wines, some of which probably did taste like cough syrup, fortified wines made that journey better. So if you have wine stored in a barrel and then transported in a ship's hold over a long distance with lots of fluctuations in temperature, the wine that's 20% alcohol by volume is going to fare much better than the still table wine that is 12% alcohol by volume. So that's one of the reasons they were so popular is because you could open one and you could keep it open for a long time and it wouldn't spoil. That extra alcohol works as an antiseptic and as a preservative. Got it. Thank you. Okay, so hit me with some, you know, if a woman is crying too much, she gets this sugary wine nonsense. That's my guess. So <laughs> some of this so-called science of wine goes back to ancient ideas about the body's humors, that you need to match the humors with the types of wines. And one of the theories is also about temperature. So that you don't want to have a very cold wine if you are distressed and in shock. You instead should have a wine that's been warmed up slightly. So a really amazing source from about the same time period, this is from 1813, is a treatise on the management of female complaints by two Scottish doctors named Alexander, not that one, Hamilton and James Hamilton. And they were both professors of midwifery. So these are the men of science who have really taken over the traditional preserve of women in catching children at birth. But they had loads of instructions for women on when they might have a bit of wine. And here's one of my, my favorite ones where they discuss a woman who's just had a child and what she should do. They say, for a few days after delivery, women are generally very thirsty. And provided the drinks be not heating, their desires may be safely gratified. So apparently these mothers are saying to him, I need a drink. And he says, well, this is okay. He says, a, a very little wine is acceptable and is a probably a good idea. They can also have some tea or some lemonade. After the third or fourth day of lying in, if the patient's strength require it, she may be indulged with two or three glasses of wine during the day. But red wine of any description ought never to be taken till the end of the second or third week after giving birth, because all red wines tend to stop the cleansings. So basically, if she is, you know, is losing blood and tissue after the birth, that that will be prevented by the red wine. And there's this association, I think, which is partly visual and partly based on the fact that red wine looks a little bit like blood. And that if you are putting red wine into her system, she is not going to cleanse herself of these unnecessary fluids from the birth. And then they also suggest that if she's breastfeeding, she has some ale or porter every day to encourage her milk production, which I thought was probably a good idea and was actually done in the Dublin maternity hospitals for a long time. Women were giving Guinness when they were in there. So there's this whole literature about how you should give women wine to settle their nerves, 
to ensure that their humors are in balance. So when Darcy is giving or offering to Lizzie a glass of wine, he is trying to settle her and, and calm her down. What did research look like? Is he just like, I don't know, wine's red, blood's red, that seems bad. Because I can just imagine coming to the exact opposite conclusion of like, oh, she's losing all this blood, let's fill her up with blood water. So like, what was the science on this? Or was it just like one person's hunch? So the science of prescribing wines is slightly debated amongst medical men, but their science is largely, we would say anecdotal, they would say probably based on case studies, based on having treated patients successfully with various kinds of wine. And as I mentioned, the idea that wine was suited to certain humors and that wine was a staple part of diet is is ancient. It goes to the ancient Greeks, which is considered the foundation of a lot of Enlightenment scholarship. So these medical men who were trained in Edinburgh in the late 18th century and are practicing and writing at the time that Austin's book is set, they would have uh, an exposure to Greco-Roman learning, and they would have taken a lot of authority from that. But largely what they're doing is they're working in hospitals, they're treating patients, and they are summarizing their, their views and their opinions based on those experiences. So it's not totally scientific in the way we understand medical science today. And there is debate. I mean, there are doctors who write treatises in which they caution patients. You know, some people have said you should have wine when you are ill. You know, you, you have to go easy here. It should be a small glass taken at certain times and it should be certain types of wine. You can't just drink whatever you want. So they they add layers of specificity, which I think really serves rhetorically to reinforce their own sense of I know what I'm doing. Yeah. One of the other places that we see wine in the novel is that Mrs. Phillips's husband is always drunk on port wine. Would overindulgence have similar connotations as it has now that like you are somehow weak for giving in to drinking too much? I think it's highly contextual. And I think the problem with Mr. Phillips is that he is overindulging in polite company and in mixed company of men and women. So we know a lot about late 18th, early 19th century Georgian masculinity and and socializing. There was a real practice of getting drunk together and a social atmosphere for sharing port wine in particular, which is a, a heavy fortified wine. And we actually have material culture from the period, like special tables that were designed to accommodate people who were drinking port wine together with a little caddy in the middle that would go across the table so people didn't have to get up and pass each other a bottle of port. And there was also a big trend for giving toasts. So a lot of people would drink to toast. So you know, you start the evening of a, a gathering of a men's club with a toast to the king, and then you would have a toast to somebody else. And this would go on, and each toast you have to have a sip. So people would get extremely drunk. But it's one thing to overindulge in port when you're with like the other bros and you're all hanging out at this drinking society. And it's another thing to be overindulging when you are at a dinner party where there are young women present. And that is seen as inappropriate. So he's not behaving in a way that is completely taboo, but he's doing it in the wrong place. And that's what makes what he does unacceptable. And it would be unacceptable for any of the women in this story to overindulge in port. 
So Jennifer, one last thing I would love to hear from you is we are spending a lot of time trying to figure out Austin's politics in this time. And a theme that is coming up again and again is that the French Revolution is really impacting the way that Austin is thinking about liberalism, but not revolution. And, you know, Darcy's garden is a very English garden where somebody else would have a French style garden. And that kind of patriotism is a really good thing. And so we know that the, you know, political climate of the moment changes British attitude toward beauty and design. Does it change the position on food and alcohol as well? That's a great question. And I think we can go a little bit further back, maybe not so much the French Revolution, but if you go to the beginning of the 18th century, because of conflict between Britain and France, there was a turn towards Portuguese wine. And the scholar Charles Luddington has has shown this really well in a, a book on the cultural history of wine, that drinking port especially in the second half of the 18th century, became a kind of patriotic act. And he sees it as part of a general fashion that was turning away from French fashions, French wine, and what was seen as kind of French frippery. And that port wine, which had been actually quite popular with the the middling classes, becomes more popular with the upper classes because they want to present themselves as more British and manly and the opposite of French. I think there's a different question about styles in food that come from the Enlightenment, that come over from France and that might have a more subtle long-term effect. So the idea, for example, that ingredients should taste purely of what they are and should not be covered with many spices, Uh, that you shouldn't try to mask flavors, but that you should try to to show them off, which, by the way, is, of course, having a big moment in food right now. It's a very contemporary idea. was also an idea of the French Enlightenment, people like Voltaire. And even as the British aristocracy tried to differentiate themselves from the French because they didn't want to look unpatriotic or disloyal, there's still a lot of fashion coming from France, especially in the culinary arts. It's still really an inspiration and a reference for British people. Hatred of France really just defined so much culture in so many countries over the last centuries. It's always love-hate, though, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Jennifer, I know that you are a scholar of more than wine. Your book was on empire in general. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you think our audience should know about like this moment in the British Empire, where the social context that Lizzie and Darcy are living in? Well, I think one thing that's that's exciting and that might interest people. So my book, Imperial Wine, looks at the expansion of vineyards throughout the British Empire. And at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, South Africa, also called the Cape, referring to the Cape of Good Hope, becomes a British territory. And the British take over what had been a Dutch land and and in doing so take over the vineyards and the wine trade. And there is one particular type of wine which is named in some of Austin's works, which is Constantia. And that is a wine that came from South Africa, that came from the Cape. So it would have also been called Cape wine. And one of the things that interests me about this period in South African wine is that you have a, a small movement in Britain for the abolition of slavery, which was popular with many well-to-do young women. And they were mostly concerned with sugar and paid very little attention to the fact that South African wine was made with the labor of enslaved people. So 
although South African wines were very popular in Britain, especially in the 1830s and 40s, but they're, they're starting to be at this period that we're talking about here, there's very little consciousness of how they're made, where they're from, or thought for the labor that goes into making it. So I cover a lot of that in the book and also just a lot more about British culture and consumption of wine from different parts of the world. It's so fascinating. I mean, and I really feel like by looking at something specific, you can learn so much. Universal is a really testament to that. Jennifer, thank you so much. It is just always a pleasure. I don't know what we're reading next yet, but we will be in touch because I guarantee you there will be wine. My pleasure. Thank you so much. It's always so fun to talk to you and I love your shows. <laughs> 